going live on five. Welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast. I'm your host, Steve, with Bone Ponics, and this is the Growing With Fishes podcast. We also have our co-host, Marty. What's going on, everybody? And uh, <coughs> today... <coughs> Sorry about that. That was a good one. Not for that. Not for now. So like Steve was saying, I think today we're going to cover... <clears throat> um, some different topics for summer as we move into uh, mid to late July and early August. Heat starts cranking up and uh, some of the different things that you need to be aware of, um, like especially full-term outdoor. I hope you guys are getting your trellises in early, all kinds of good stuff like that. So if you're, <clears throat> so like here in Southern Oregon right now, you know, everybody's brewing veg teas. They're, they're feeding everything for <clears throat> that new plant growth and um, they're getting taller and bushier. The earlier you can get your first layer of netting, especially if you want to grow, you know, like monster 14, 16, 18 foot plants, um, you know, they're going to need some structure from the wind, at least here they do. So, uh, Usually it's multiple layers of trellis that go in or, or support extra silica, um, lots of nitrogen. Um, yeah. So that's the kind of fun stuff that I think it will tackle. Steve's done coughing up a lawn over there. Yeah. Sorry about that. We have some really good ash that we mixed in with the. That was a good one. Really good keef that we mixed in with the joint. <laughs> My I turn. I kind of forgot that was in the joint. So. Kind of funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we thought we, today we'd cover uh, kind of the midsummer topics, you know, uh, how do you prevent heat stress in your plants? Um, you know, what type of light covers or blight blockers should you use if you're going to go that route? Um, what, uh, what else you're going to use on your, uh, you know, in order for, to prevent insects in the high heat? You know, what are some of the other topics that come up with heat? Uh, and then like Marty's talking about scrogging early, especially with the higher heat. What else can you be doing this time of year? What do you need to be looking towards, you know, maybe in August uh, that you can kind of prepare for as well, so. Yeah, caterpillars should be something that you should start getting prepared for. Um, never, never too early. Uh, uh, so I think gonna put out mantis you know you should have done that already but you could could still squeeze some out uh if you're in a, a warmer climate um yeah there's lots of lots of fun summer stuff obviously for uh you know temperature is always the the big one especially if you're in aquaponics um keeping that water cool can really help alleviate a lot of your uh problem they can withstand a lot higher ambient temperature in the room um, it, <clears throat> or in the greenhouse or outside whatever um, if they've got cold water running through their roots they're going to be resistant like steve's talking about being silica uh, another thing that can help them out so 
definitely built up that rigidity, which is also going to help with uh, uh, wind in the long run, which is, you know, kind of what we were talking about for trellising. So some of those things you can, you know, you can fight on multiple fronts, two birds, one stone kind of thing. Um, yeah, so, so I guess the a good, good place we can start off here on the conversation would be temperature. So air temperature, again, uh, we've talked about this in other episodes, is um, the, uh, the, so for air temp, uh, you know, you're looking for, you know, lower 80s. Um, you want your leaf surface temp to, to be uh, 86 to 88. Um, ideally uh, in order for to get the proper uh, leaf uh, um, you know uh, all the different things going on that happen to have inside the leaf we've had brendan from spectrum king come on and talk about that i have a puppy that's being quite rambunctious come on buddy everything that can go wrong will go wrong on this on this cast today um <laughs> so the air uh, ideally you want your leaf surface temperature to be 85 to 88 degrees uh, to get optimal uh, growth speed. Um, we've had Brendan talk about that quite at length when he talked about VPD uh, on some of the different episodes that uh, Brendan from Spectrum King had been on. So making sure that, uh, you know, you aren't cooking them. And if you are going to go above that, you do need to make sure that you're upping your, your VPD and, uh, and, you know, making sure you have uh, unlimited access to water, such as aquaponics, or making sure that you have, you know, heavy extra irrigation so that the plants can you know, process extra water if you do have to go above that. Silica also helps, like you talked about, dramatically help reduce uh, heat uh, um, heat stress. And foxtailing and all these other different types of uh, side effects that you get with that wilting, slow growth, um, a leaf curl, all these things are, are mitigated significantly by the proper silica dosing. and also helps on the other end of the spectrum if you uh, do not have enough temperature Let's say maybe it's the winter time and it's starting to get really cold. Silica also helps with uh, with cold stress as well. So any kind of temperature stressor uh, and helping the plants survive those extreme temperatures on one end of the spectrum or the other uh, are, are very important um, uh, to make sure that you have your silica levels uh, uh, dialed into where they, they need to be. Because if you aren't, you're going to start to have problems. You're going to have foxtailing. You're going to have plants stretching. You're going to have them possibly go into flower earlier. You're going to have increased chance of hermaphroditic traits. Uh, you know, stressed out plants uh, will create male, uh, you know, female pollen. Um, so these are all things you're trying to avoid uh, that if you're growing in Oklahoma or in Colorado or in New Mexico or in some of these other places can absolutely be a problem, uh, uh, you know, uh, or Florida or some of these other new markets that, that get quite warm. Africa, uh, all these places can, can be quite tricky to grow in if you're not prepared for it. Um, uh, so we had a couple of questions from chat before we move on. I was just going to say that too. Um, so somebody said something about uh, thrips uh, getting worse in August. Yeah, definitely as it warms up, um, you'll, you'll definitely see them come out a lot more. Um, so yeah, you know, releasing those H miles, those lace wings, the growth fields, um, really, uh, you know, keep an eye on your temperature and humidity and kind of choose from that menu and see what, see what you could do. But, um, you know, I would say, you know, we're, we're huge fans of lace wings. 
on the show and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll at least eat till they die. Some of the other ones will, will not feed nearly as much, but they'll, they'll, uh, they'll stick around, I think, better than just about anything else. So if you don't have anything that's perfect, uh, just get as close as you can to match your temperature and humidity um, most of the time and then do, do your best to, to do targeted stuff. But, uh, you know, it's a great time to, to target um, thrips or really any, uh, you know, I would say top of the soil layer insect can be treated by, um, by HMLs. And you're going to see all of those increase in the warmer months. Yeah, I would say so in the greenhouse right now, obviously, it's pretty warm. It was 107 here the other day uh, in uh, outside the greenhouse. It was 107.6, actually. Um, so we've had a couple of really warm days now in, in southern Oklahoma. And uh, I don't know the exact internal temperature between there and the worst of it in the greenhouse. It's gotten pretty in there. Uh, and the, the plants that were, or the insects that we're still seeing, I'm still seeing clearly when I'm scouting and uh, looking at leaf samples. I'm still finding all of our assassin bugs. We're still finding a ton of assassin bugs and a ton of aureus seem to be, you know, just thriving around uh, uh, to feed on anything that happens to sneak its way into the greenhouse. Um, and in California, uh, at least until they run out of, don't really have anything in here, so we release them as a preventative. But um, you know, we, we do see them up for about a week or two after release, and then we stop seeing them. Uh, but uh, we are, are not seeing uh, you know quick deaths or anything like that from the heat. So that seems to be the the package that's working really awesome for us. The lace wings have been dying. Um, it's simply too hot. Uh, we've had to pretty much stop doing the lace wings. They're just not surviving. Um, <laughs> I just wasn't finding any eggs or any any adults at all. Um, on our indoor, we're finding that the aureus are, are, are really good, and then the lace wings are also uh, doing well. But I'm, I'm not having it, not having them survive too well in the uh, in the greenhouse right now. So um, uh, those are, are uh, I guess, uh, uh, through our observation. Now, for chilling, uh, your water temperature is very important. Now, that can be quite hard if you're doing an aquaponic system and in the south where you you know it can get hot you know we're having issues right now our water temperature is well into the, the 80s right now which is not good um we want to get it down so what we've done to help mitigate some of the problems with that is we've added a whole second we've added a whole additional blower and doubled the amount of uh of the air per second and that we're, we're pumping in so uh we we've div div divided it off to where the fish have their own dedicated one and now the plants have their own dedicated blower instead of running both off of one and, and it's, you know, doubled the amount of dissolved oxygen across the entire system, um, which has made a big difference in helping the, the, the plant and fish health. And then we've also had quite a bit of um, uh, other uh, uh, luck with uh, just changing the layout of stuff and trying to add a little bit uh, additional distribution for water flow on the, on the feed line so it's not all just coming into one place. Uh, helps a lot with, with uh, increasing your oxygen flow and um, other issues you run into with, with, with heat. Remember, dissolved oxygen goes down with heat, so that's something you want to work with. So other things you can do is use a heat sink uh, to separate that off, and um, uh, you can use coils. I know Bain over at Vertica, who's been on the show before, uh, they have a big uh, uh, heat exchanger array out of PEX, metal PEX pipe that runs through the bottom of their raft beds. 
uh, and through the bottom of their media beds and then runs underground uh, uh, also through their, their sumps, I believe as well. Uh, and then underground uh, in under, you know, about six or eight feet of ground uh, they piled on top of that and then acts as a giant heat sink, right? And they can wet that down and, and get that nice and cool uh, and then suck that heat off of that and, and allow that to wick a lot of that heat off of the, the water. So that has made quite a bit of difference in their temperature of their water. Um, uh, I know you can also use geothermal, you know, if you're planning a new, a new greenhouse, we've talked about that quite extensively uh, and in shown diagrams and stuff like that as well. We talk about that quite extensively in the class that Marty and I teach, um, uh, you know, as far as exact designs and stuff like that. Because like even your blower solution, I mean, that, while it adds dissolved oxygen, you're still you're, adding you're limited hot by, if you're blowing in 107 degree <laughs> air from outside, it's still only, you know, you're only going to get so much out of it, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, it's obviously a great idea, but when you're dealing with that kind of temperature, if you had something like geothermal, it would make it a lot easier to control your overall environment than trying to, you know, just compensate through water volume, thermal mass. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're actually going to try, we have two um, refrigerator coolers. Uh, I, don't, I don't even, they're not refrigerator coolers. There's some kind of chill, like big giant chiller coolers. And we're going to stick those in both of our sumps and see if we can't use that. And some, some, we have some chiller compressors that we got from an old um, freezer building that we happen to have our, our hands on. So we're going to see if we can't jerry rig up something that might be able to cool the water pretty rapidly, but uh, at a, you know, sane price per hour, but we'll see how it all goes once it's all built, but we'll, we'll do an update on that once it's all together. But uh, that we might end up just waiting to see if it works before we put a video out. And if it doesn't work, it, you might never see that one, but uh, something fun to try. I know that uh, I was at a grow last year and they had put uh, just a straight up top loading freezer that they had plumbed <laughs> with coils in it to, to chill hyper chill liquid. I don't know if they're using like a 200 proof or something like that. Um, uh, anyway, they were using some kind of liquid to chill it down or glycol or something uh, and the coils and the freezers and then using that and it just didn't do anything. It just, they burned a bunch of electricity and it just didn't make any difference on the water. So uh, you really do need quite a bit of BTU capacity if you're going to actually try and chill the water you're I think you're far better off always doing un, uninsulated tanks and uninsulated beds directly to the ground if you're in the south or any hot weather place and then um, combining that with you know some type of uh, heat exchange system uh, you know you can also tie that into your, your 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 heating right so that same heat exchanger that goes through my beds could also be you know you could do a couple of loops on that one of them could be cooling and going to a chiller, but you could also loop that around to say a solar water heater and now suddenly use that to heat your system in the winter. Or you could run it to a gas tankless water heater and run that uh, in order to heat your system. Say if the power went out, you could run it off of propane or something like that, right? So uh, you could do all different types of cool different things and, and tie this together with your cooling uh, and heating at the same time. You can also run, so say you have solar water heater panels um, and you can run those in reverse at nighttime. 
So I can run the solar repeater panels and fire them up at nighttime when it's below the water temperature. And those are gonna radiate heat off and into the night air. And I can actually use those as radiators to, to, to dump heat off of that water to cool that water down. So uh, that was something we quite frequently did in Colorado is if it got warm that day, you know, as soon as the you know, temperature came down, we turned the, the pumps on for the water heaters because it would, you know, dump that heat. So it was, uh, you know, another way that we could do that. Yeah, just a lot of people don't realize they can use a lot of their heating elements to to cool them. Well, then you're not limited to only using it for certain months out of the year. You, know, you can kind of get more more use out of the same infrastructure, but just adding a little bit to it. Yep, and if you ever do those type of lines, always use glycol, um, you know, or ethanol. You know, something that's not going to kill your fish instantly. Uh, glycol being better than ethanol, but both of them will are, are okay. Um, you know, in a, in a dilution rate in an aquaponic system, you're probably not going to put enough gallons of ethanol in, but uh, 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 glycol really is the better way to go. Uh, if it freezes or anything like that, you don't have to worry about it busting your lines if, if it gets super cold. All right, let's see what other questions, another stuff from chat is. Had a um, problems bottom older leaves turning black and dying maybe overwatering could it be bud rot or root bound i'm sorry um i'm not sure i'd have to see pictures there um older leaves turning black and dying i'm not sure exactly what you have going on again we'd have to kind of see or maybe marty has some thoughts um i mean yeah i guess it kind of depends on how it goes from you know green and healthy to black and dead I mean, there's usually, you know, stages, you know, so is it, you know, ye yellowing from the tips in, from the inside out, crinkling uh, <coughs> brown on the tips, uh, you know, what it, it seems like there would be something in between the two. Um, and I think that would have to tell you for sure. Now, uh, dual zone plants will definitely um, drop some leaves. <clears throat> when they start filling up their initial root zone and before they stretch out into the bed. Um, so it also kind of depends on if it's happening consistently, um, what the rest of the plant looks like. I mean, it could very easily just be, um, you know, dropping some leaves because it got root bound and hasn't grown all the way out of the pot and into the bed yet. So, I know that's not very helpful. It, it could be nothing or it could be something. So I kind of need to know a little more. So whatever, whatever you got, I don't know, maybe Steve has some more ideas, but. Yeah, again, without, without seeing it, uh, you know, I don't know. It could be windburn, maybe have too much, I, I mean, unlikely, but again, without, I just, I don't know. It's a vague, uh, vague description you, you feel again. Feel free to email me at Potent Ponics. Uh, I think someone did tell me, like after an episode last week or the week before, I apologize for <laughs> not getting back to you. I think it's one or two other people. I don't know, I've had a really busy, crazy week. So uh, I have like a bunch of projects all going off at once right now. So uh, I apologize if I've been worse about getting back to emails than normal guys. He said he was going to post to the Facebook group, so I'll keep an eye out for it. Cool. All right. 
Let's uh, see how Another mentioned, uh, someone, oh, I was going to say someone mentioned about shade cloth. Um, I'm a big fan of 30 or 40% shade cloth, especially if you're transitioning plants to go into your outdoor. You know, if you're, if you have plants that are in, in um, you know, any kind of indoor setting, if you put them in direct sunlight, they're going to get sunburn. I know that sounds crazy, but they will get sunburn. So you, you need to make sure that you stage them out. So we, we do here is all the stuff that's going to get moved outside. We actually have a little dapple forest area that we can put them, uh, that they get pretty good shade, basically functions kind of like a shade cloth. Uh, but if you aren't blessed enough to have nice big oak trees like we do, um, you can uh, uh, use that 30 to 40% shade cloth or even a 60% shade cloth if you really wanted to be on the safe side. Yeah, I got plenty of oak trees here. <laughs> That's not an issue. I mean, but heat's still an issue. So, I mean, there's, you know. Looks like somebody, uh, somebody popped in here. What's up, Roger? You uh, muted, buddy. Thanks, or you don't have a mic. You're, turn your mic on or something. Something with his mic. Steve broke it. I blame the other Roger. Try changing your audio device. Seeing if that uh, little arrow next to where it says mute. You can select your microphone. Try try changing that. See if that doesn't help. If not, uh, so in the meantime, uh, you were mentioning something about nematodes. Oh yeah, somebody asked how effective are nematodes in a smaller outdoor soil growth. Um, so I don't know specifically okay. about smaller or not. I mean, I've always found nematodes to be and effective work. as long as you had a decent. Yeah, there you are, Roger. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Finish your thought. Sure. So yeah, I think that uh, um, nematodes are pretty much always effective, especially in aquaponics. Um, you know, I feel like the, uh, you know, the water gives them you know, kind of that extra layer to disperse a little bit more horizontally. Um, and the, the water flow helps them kind of populate a grow, whereas in soil, they kind of, uh, they tend to only move vertically as opposed to horizontally, from what I understand. So um, I, I would definitely recommend them no matter what, but I think you'll get the most value out of them with a nice healthy aquaponic system. Uh, to thrive in. Um, otherwise, you just might have to add them pretty consistently, like especially if you continue to have issues, you might need to apply a few different times. Also, there are really effective ways to release nematodes and really ineffective ways to release nematodes. So um, follow the instructions that you get with them pretty close or look up ways uh, which they disperse. I think, was it? Nema bucket. Nema bucket. Nema bucket, yeah. Check out the Nema bucket if you want to go the super simple route, or or even if you just want to help understand the principles of the Nema bucket and how to disperse them evenly, instead of putting like say, ten million nematodes in one bed and five in the other one, <laughs> um, which, which isn't uh, which is easier to do than it sounds. I mean that's exaggerated, but that kind of imbalance is not difficult to achieve if you don't follow a couple of that, when we do it here we actually we'll we'll mix them up in real small batches 
uh, and then they mix them up enough for like, you know, 50, 40 or 50 plants and they go water that. And then we mix up a new one to make sure that it's dosed very accurately uh, and that we're not, we're not screwing up because again, if you don't have the right equipment, you can screw it up real easy. Have you tried the, um, the, I don't know, the, the brick as opposed to the sponge they have now from, uh, I ordered it through um, Arvico, um, but essentially it's like a, it's almost more like a paste or a, or a, a little brick that you break up into chunks and um, makes it up as opposed to use the sponge method. And I kind of like that better because I can, I can manually mix up smaller batches and feel better about how much is getting in each one as opposed to like a sponge where you like rinse some out and then put it back in the main bucket or or you have just a main bucket and then you pour out of the main bucket and dilute it for smaller batches. I just feel like it's maybe it's all visual. I don't know. I didn't check it with my microscope or anything, but um, I feel like it's easier to get a measured dose and, and spread it out over a couple of weeks instead of you know, when you get them just on the sponge, it's kind of hard to tell how much you're actually getting in each batch unless you break out the microscope and, you know, do up a couple slides. Oh, yeah. yeah. Want to do. <laughs> so, uh, Have you tried that stuff, though? I haven't done the kits. We actually ordered from Arbico, but we, we got that. We get it in the bags and it comes in like the vermiculate or whatever the like medium is i don't know what it is i have we have we might even have one or two left in the fridge i gotta look i know we ordered some recently and we what we do is we sprinkle that in when we do our transplants right so when we transplant from our clones if it's going into our flower room and we're into our mom room we'll sprinkle a little bit in, in each pot to make sure uh or into that soil batch rather uh, for all of those pots in order to make sure that we have a good distribution on them what, what's up roger Sorry, I'm totally unprepared. I've been working my butt off lately, so I have no preparation for this show whatsoever. That's all right. What, what's been new with over at True Aquaponics? New, you say? Well, business, fortunately for us, has exploded. It's been unbelievably outrageous. Uh, there's so many people getting into aquaponics hydroponics, and just even general gardening that buy from us. Um, yo, talk it off. It, uh, it, it's amazing. All the people need help. And uh, so we're, I'm spending a great amount of my day helping people explain to them what does what and why it does it uh, to get them. What happened to your hair? Yeah, what, what happened? Did you fall in some ashes or some bleach or? No, oh, so this is when I when it's hot out. This is how I wear my hair. So, well, you're you're pretty young, so I'm pretty sure it's not gray like that naturally. Oh, here. And personally, I just shave it off. Look at it. Look, huh? Keep it nice and short and. I know I can't hide nothing in it, but <laughs> I can't do the dreads, but I don't mind the long hair. 
that's 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 why I love doing a you know anything live with you. I can I can say something like that, and you just totally make it worthwhile. <laughs> I like your uh, different color camo coordination you got going on there. You got the oh yeah, blue bottoms and green tops. So the reason why is so in in Zimbabwe, where half most of my wardrobe is. <laughs> Uh, camo oh. is illegal to wear. Really? <laughs> so most of the clothes I left here are camo or like, uh, you know, culturally might not fit, in, you know, have big pot leaves on them or like have something on them that like just wouldn't quite fly so much over in a more conservative place. So. <laughs> Oh yeah. It so, was funny though. I wore a shirt that had a bunch of psychedelic molecules on it through a bunch of checkpoints the one day. That was fun. It's like if only any of you knew chemistry. Allegedly. Allegedly. You know what? A asking somebody to know chemistry and understand chemistry and understand how <laughs> different uh chemicals and minerals react with each other. Uh, typically is a bad idea because people just don't know. I mean, they're, they're taught it in, in middle school, high school, but they don't pay attention. They, they think it's never going to make any difference to them. So that's the last of what was left over of gardening in school from the old times. And it's, it's, it's kind of a lost art. People just don't know what works with plants, what uh, minerals you can put together and what you can't. Uh, so that's, you know, it's interesting you brought that up the way you did. Uh, it, it is definitely a lost art uh, understanding what plants need uh, and, and what certain minerals do to plants um, when, when it's added to an aquaponics or even a hydroponics or even just soil. Uh, it, it's, it's, people just don't realize what it does anymore. Oh, yeah. And, and, I know one of the early uh, segments Marty and I used to do was, uh, can I use this? Remember that? That's funny. I was oh, looking yeah. back. Actually, I still have. Like, we grab like anything from the store on the way home from work and, and be yeah. like, can I use this aquaponics? Or somebody would ask us about a product and we'd research it. Now um, we can just tell them to go to True Aquaponics and just pick whatever you want. Yeah. Before that, Pretty we much. had to like find whatever... Like it would literally be like a trip to a grocery store on my way home, and you, I would like look through like three aisles worth of stuff and be like, okay, here's two things that I could, you know, like maybe use if I wanted to. And most of them were not even useful enough for me personally because just because I had well water and I already do a lot of stuff with worms and other stuff. But for me personally, I didn't really need to use a lot of it. But so I even like, I have stuff from like three years ago doing those segments that are still like downstairs in the garage right now. Like nutrient bags are like half full because I just don't, I don't use them. Not that I can't, I just, you, if, when I do use them, I use like tiny, tiny amounts. And yes, Roger, I have lots and lots of worms, tons of worms. Although they don't like the heat as much as they like the cold. So in the wintertime, easier to grow worms. Uh, yeah. our, our worms are going nuts um we, we use red wigglers primarily and 
insane. They're out of control. I mean, we've got I, – I never thought they'd get so big. I'm very shocked. I thought they'd stay fairly small, but they're not. Oh, they're great they're bait. Pure, pure oh, they're excellent bait. Oh, yeah. There's not my – one of my son's favorite, and by the way, shout out to my son. It's his birthday today, so I'm going to have to take off. And Happy birthday. But uh, one of his favorite things to do is either just take worms out and, and just go feed them directly to the fish, or when we get to go fishing, he mm -hmm. loves to go get a thing of worms to take to the river or to the lake, and catching a fish with his own worm is uh, is pretty fun for him. So that, that's definitely a definite fun factor for the, for the kids that like to get their hands dirty. Or if you're you're a fisherman, you don't you want to buy one? Just get some red regulars, tie yourself a bin. You'll never have to go to the bait shop again. Throw them some food scraps every now and again. It'll be good to get some water. When it's hot out, uh, you know, give them lots of water. When it's uh, when it's cool out, they don't need as much. You can just kind of keep it moist in there and give them plenty of food. So more food when it's cold, more water when it's hot. They'll they'll explode. Gotta let the dog go in or the cat. One of the two. What do you got? Dog, cat? All of the above. Dogs, man. I, for oh. us, it's dogs. We got, we got four little dogs. Look, hold on. So, tips this, on small worms. This is our newest addition. This is Benny. Oh. Isn't huh? Benny cutie? Look at that young man. It looks and like he, a snack for my dog. He, uh, we, we're not getting fixed, so just saying. Oh, he, he's a man, man. He's the only he one. The he's the only one in the house that hadn't been fixed. He just got our. He just got our video censored. <laughs> Sorry, man. It's not. It's not my box. fault. You had to blur that out. Way to go, Roger. <laughs> that. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I, I, I mean, you are growing weed shit. You're going to censor my dog, really? <laughs> what uh, What are some of the other topics that have been hot over at True Aquaponics and or questions that have been uh, been fiery lately, especially with summer coming up? We were just talking about the importance of silica and, and other nutrients with this heat. Yeah, uh, heat stress has been a real issue. Um, powdery mildew has been really a big issue as of late because of the humidity in a lot of areas in the south uh, and and potassium silicate helps with both uh, if you're dosing your system with it or if you're spraying directly on the plants it helps both ways to cut down on the heat stress and also the the uh, issues that come from powdery mildews and other mildews and or molds and other bacteria and viruses that can attack your plants it's a it's a wonderful wonderful additive it's 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 something if i had to get if i had to pick one thing to keep in my my set of what i was going to give my plants it would be potassium silicate there's other things your plants need but that one thing does more for your plants than anything else as far as keeping them safe keeping them healthy giving them the opportunity to survive an attack from powdery mildew or other uh things coming in and then heal themselves on top of that so very very important mineral we've had a uh, we've had um occasional uh issues with powdery mildew uh in oklahoma <laughs> with uh, uh the different um different places uh 
one thing I found out in Oklahoma is some of the traditional stuff just doesn't work in the climate here. It's just, it's kind of too perfect for powdery mildew. Um, I'm sure Texas is similar with high humidity, high temp and um, high humidity, high temperature. And uh, what um, we found the best product hands down, <clears throat> hands down that I've found in the last two years in Oklahoma, it's been a product called Sonata, which is a Bactillus pomilus spray. Uh, and uh, it really just is, is really wonderful. I know a lot of people like regalia. I have not had very good luck with regalia. I know a lot of people do. Um, uh, I know you also can't use regalia in every market. Um, and then we've also alternated that with Cease. So Cease and Sonata has really been my go-to. And uh, man, if you, if you do that right in a good rotation, it's, it's pretty hard for anything to really get established too much. Just speaking of that, uh, sulfur burners. A lot of people use sulfur burners to stave off powdery mildew. If they're in a greenhouse situation where they can contain the sulfur fumes, uh, what are your thoughts on that? So here's the deal with sulfur burners. One, for cannabis, don't use them. Um, the issue with cannabis is that they contaminate your gland heads. And if you make hash or concentrate from them, it will smell like burnt match heads, freshly burnt match heads. Uh, so not the kind of thing that you want to dab. Um, certainly not something that you want to inhale large amounts of. It's just not going to be a just, pleasant. Just, just saying, I, I like that smell. Um, but oh, I enjoy the smell of freshly burnt matches, but uh, I don't want to smoke that if I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm gaseous, so that's one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. As as Mr. Mike West says, if you if you sulfur, you get distillate. So um. that makes perfect sense. And I, you know, I'm I'm rattling your cage, of course, but uh, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense sure. what you're saying. But for lettuce or tomatoes or cucumbers or something like that, <laughs> I think you'd be okay. Maybe not. You know, I I wouldn't be thrilled about it for for. Uh, you know, in the case of um, lettuce, maybe, but for tomato, if I had tomatoes or cucumbers or something, yeah, that'd be totally fine. Um, so but what, why not? This could be very crop specific. Why not lettuce? Because it's a large surface area, and I'm going to do a light rinse on it, and then serve it up, and you could have a flavor. So remember, the human nose can detect uh, part uh, sulfur at two to four parts per billion. Okay, it's one of the lowest molecules that the human nose is capable of detecting because uh, uh, sulfur is, is one of the first gases to be released by bacteria that break down uh, food if you're, um, you know, something's rotting or if there's bad, bad fruit or bad meat, uh, the, that sulfur causing bacteria is going to be one of the first things that, that starts to really colonize. So um, that's why your nose is adapted to actually smell those. So that's why one reason why if you overdose sulfur, even a small amount, it's going to be immediately noticeable to customers because you're naturally evolved to pick up on that. That's also why they use uh, uh, sulfur in gas lines uh, because you're hypersensitive to it. So basically, you'll, you'll, if you're eating lettuce that's been uh, sulfurized, it's going to smell like fart lettuce. It could. Um, I, found, I found the best way, the best way to prevent powdery mildew, and, and I, we've done a lot of tests. I've done a lot of testing with this back before, uh, back when I was working with vegetables, 
keep your silica uh, levels above 60 parts per million in your aquaponic system for lettuce and above 80 parts per million for cannabis. And, you know, maybe here and there and really susceptible strains, you're going to see it. But for the most part, you're simply just not going to see it anymore. We, we just, I don't see it very often in our greenhouse. Um, we do have a little bit of issues now, now and again, if we get some extreme temperature swings or, or something really unusual, but uh, outside of that, we, re, you know, really doesn't, doesn't really seem to be a huge issue. Uh, you know, a little bit of prevention here and there, but, you know, if you get your silica levels way up, again, it also helps with shelf life of your lettuce and all kinds of other stuff. So, sorry about the background noise with the puppy, still getting used to trying to be quiet. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, so that, those are other, other things to be important and, and, and to, to think about. But you know, you can absolutely sell for a room. Between. Oh, go ahead. Did I lose you? Did I lose the internet? Between runs, you know, that would be something you could do. But uh, again, I don't know. I can hear you just fine. Uh, but the other one, so for aquaponics, I really like Kapow. You know, it's a product called Kapow. Comes in large, uh, large jugs. And I find it's a great... Uh, Great product for um, uh, for powdery mildew as well as a wide range of insects and mites. So, so the, the issue I've got with anything liquid is when it ships, it may or may not come to you whole. And we went through that. We we bought a lot of Kapow and shipped it out. I mean, it, it is a great product, and a lot of people buy it and they rebuy it, rebuy it. But we had so many shipments go out even when we we went to great extents trying to protect the, the jugs they would uh, get squeezed or whatever and opened up and however they got opened in transit we were losing so much that uh, we weren't making any money so we had to stop and we didn't stop because the product didn't work we stopped because we couldn't ship the product properly so that's that's why we've we've pulled back into like potassium silicate because it it does a lot of the stuff up front. If if you if you we've seen that if you use potassium silicate from the beginning, um, you you avoid a lot of those issues. You don't need to buy Kapow, um, except in a very few instances where people are are careless. Uh, so we, we've right gone more that route. Right now we we use Kapow uh, one as part of our rotation on our one gallons. Um, because when we move them outside, occasionally we're getting some leaf hoppers that are landing and hanging out on the plants. Uh, so we're getting the occasional leaf hopper that hangs out on the plants. So um, just to make sure we don't have any issues with them long term, we've been hitting them with Kapow uh, as part of the rotation to, to make sure we're not dealing with them long term. It's lemon gas oil and castor oil is the main, main ingredients of Kapow for those wondering. You, again, you can make that at home. Uh, a lot of people use Dr. Zymes. It seems to be pretty popular with the more organic people. Dr. Zymes is just citric acid and water. You can make it for a lot cheaper. I mean, I'm sure the guys that created it are awesome, but um, it's one of those things you definitely can make cheaper. <laughs> well, and there's there's a lot of things out there that, that you can make cheaper than what you can buy. The, the issue is, do, do people have the time to spend and, and while we're all in quarantine, for those of us in quarantine, we do have the time. Uh, and during that time, yeah, by all means, don't give me your money. If you can make something I sell cheaper, do it. 
uh, that's 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 all about you and your family. I, I'm I'll if I can help you, I will, uh, and Terry will too. Uh, it's it's not it's not about us making money. Um, we we want to help people grow better foods, uh, better whatever they're growing, and we have um, no. Uh, how do you put this? Uh, to, basically, just we don't care what you're growing. We want you to grow it better. So if you get the opportunity to do something yourself instead of buying it from us or somebody else, uh, absolutely do it. And uh, always reach out for help and say, you know, how do I do this? Uh, what what do I need to do different to make this work better? And, and we'll help you. Uh, because, again, it's not about the money. It's about helping people for us. Oh yeah. So, um, uh, Marty, what are, uh, oh, are you still there, Marty? He might've ran off to wrestle the kiddos. I, I think Marty fell out of his chair while the kid was tying a rope around him and running off. Yep. Sorry about that with the dog. Dog found why? the cat. Why? why? Why are you sorry? Don't be sorry, man. That's, that's your babies. No, I try to have good audio. I try to avoid the highs and lows for people audio, especially a lot of people like to listen to it with headphones. Um, or we get 10 times the audience, more than 10 times the audience, probably 20 times the audience of the audio version. So I do apologize to anyone that uh, I will try to fix that in post. Yeah, um, anyways, I, I'm so sorry. Uh, so um, someone mentioned here, uh, yeah, PM loves those big swings and temp. Absolutely, you know, cold nights. Uh, with high humidity and warm days is really where you get that. Um, here in the greenhouse, we're dealing with around 80% humidity with, uh, you know, 75 to 100 degree temperatures. So even with a wet wall and exhaust fans, it still gets a little bit toasty in there, but we keep the air moving and that really helps significantly as well. We've quadrupled the number of fans that were in there from when I got here. So that's also made an enormous difference in making sure that the spores don't even get a chance to land. Also makes it harder for insects. You know, imagine if you're a little insect, you're trying to come in there, land on the plant. It's like a hurricane in there. Uh, so. Um, some of the other, uh, what are some of the other, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. Uh, what are some of the other stuff that's coming across over at True Aquaponics that you're seeing or getting questions about? Uh, one, one of the big things we've seen lately, um, people want to build uh, raft beds. Uh, and and we're, it's gotten to where we're shipping these all over the world uh, for raft masters. And there's another one out there that's similar. And I'll go ahead and tell you, it's, it's called Easy Raft. Um, and last weekend, a, a gentleman wrote me from a nonprofit and uh, to get taxes cut off of it, which is fine. That's, we will definitely help you with that. But the, the thing was, is he, he wanted to know the differences. And we found that the Raftmaster is built much more sturdy than the Easy Raft. So um, you have support over two feet on the Raftmaster, whereas on the Easy Raft, it's over four feet. And that can be an issue down the line. It may not be an issue right up front, but down the line it will be. Um, let's see. The next biggest thing we've had is uh, people are running into 
mineral deficiencies uh, because plants are growing fast right now. It's, it's warming up in most of the United States and uh, the upper hemisphere. So uh, plants are growing fast and they're, they're burning through whatever minerals might be in the water naturally. Uh, typically that's kind of a few minerals, not many. Uh, and then they're gone and the plants start to suffer quickly. And when they do, you end up with plants that are not really, I'm not gonna say they're not suitable for human consumption. I'm just gonna say uh, you're not getting out of those plants what you should get uh, when, you, when you consume them. Um, can you consume them with, with low minerals? Absolutely. Are they worth consuming? Probably not. You can go to Walmart and do about as well as you could with an aquaponic system that had no minerals in it. Uh, let's see the next big thing. I'm just looking through my email to see my, my questions have been asked lately. Uh, oh, <laughs> our nutrient management service. Uh, that has been phenomenal. Um, let me let me just show real quick. Let me get over here and open up this folder that shows some of the pictures from a before and after. And I'll, I'll share the screen once I get them up and, and just put that up here. For the, you folks that are just audio, I'm sorry. Uh, nothing beats seeing it. If you can't see it, just listen to the sound of my voice and understand that uh, this is phenomenal. So red oak leaf. All right. Let me get this over here. Just bear with me just a second, guys, while I move all this stuff around. I've only got two computer screens, so it takes a second to get everything where I want it. I'm trying to share the screen. It's not working. Another one of those te technical difficulties. Host disabled participant screen sharing. Thanks, Steve. Steve, you, you gotta you gotta allow me to share my screen. You can. So it says on the bottom it says share screen. It, yeah. It says screen sharing. Share screen. I click on it, it says host disabled participant screen sharing. You hate me, man. And it could be just a glitch, I, you know, I don't know. Try it now, I fixed it. Let me see. Yep, there it is. So, right there you can see, this was uh, pre or nutrient dose. Uh, and this, this particular is a, it's, it's a red oak leaf lettuce. It's a beautiful plant. Very tasty, but it didn't have the color it should have. Two weeks after the first dose was sent to them, uh, this young lady sent me another picture. Let me open that up. So you can see there the difference in the picture. Wait, that's, a, that's the wrong picture. What is that? Sorry guys, wrong picture. Let me try it again. There it is. So two weeks in from the first picture I showed you, this is what you got. Um, so it, it reddened up really, really nice. Um, beautiful plant. 
and then the last one she sent us was here. And that's just, that is, well, I mean, go ahead. Whoever's shoulder pads those are, those are amazing. Shoulder pads? Never mind, just go ahead. Yeah, I missed something there. <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's uh, the, the three-week nutrient, or the nothing three-week, the, uh, the nutrient management service. She, she sends in her water sample once a month. We go through it. We, we figure out. Hello? Did we crash? What's going on? Check, 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 mic, check, 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 check. Okay, I think we lost Roger. I'm not sure what happened there. I guess he crashed. Anyways, uh, yes, the subscription service is doing awesome. We have a lot of people using it and having a lot of great luck. Okay, cool. Awesome. It's just Roger. So um, some of the other stuff that people are going to run into, uh, Marty was starting to touch on this, is uh, it's starting to get that time to look for caterpillars. You got tent caterpillars and tent worms or bagworms, depending on what you like to call them. Um, those are a uh, another... Uh, Another one that you need to start looking out for this time of year, uh, you know, you definitely want to be looking out for, you know, those uh, surprise summer spider mites that you can get here and there that float in on the wind. Um, uh, I had a friend of mine that runs, uh, oh no, we talked about that last week. Um, also, uh, we, I'm trying to think what else we have. Um, we haven't covered on this summer temperature stuff. Um, that Marty and I were hoping to go over. Sorry, I'm a bit discombobulated today. Uh, this heat is like frying my brain and at the end of the day. I'm just fucking brain dead. So I do apologize. Um, uh, some of the other stuff you want to talk about, we wanted to, I wanted to talk about was irrigation. Uh, you know, if you're going with the irrigation type setups, um, you know, for soil stuff, uh, you know, you make sure you're checking your drip lines regularly, uh, making sure you're flushing them. I know you can always take an air compressor blast your lines out uh, if you know don't overpressure them it can be a great way to to clean them making sure you don't got you know spiders and other junk in them um and then other than that i've just been working on uh, uh you know making sure you get your imo collection done for your summertime it can be a great time to get really rapid imo collections and bank up your your collection especially if you're going to do the uh, insect imo um we're i'm i just currently ordered 30 pounds of uh um, uh, insect frass. So uh, when that gets here, we should uh, be able to start doing some of the uh, insect IMO um, uh, videos. I, I want to do one a step by step with the insect frass IMO on how to make that pest control agent because I don't. I do think that's something that's very important that needs to be out there. 
So basically, the, the, the basic concept of that is to do something similar to uh, IMO. And it was this is something I worked on in Africa that worked really well for us on grasshoppers and other things like that, you know, kind of as a general pesticide, particularly for grasshoppers and other, you know, maybe um, traditionally more tricky to control insects. Uh, and uh, one of the things that um, I found works the best is this insect hybridization IMO. And uh, I first heard about it was a, a, a version of this where they take and do a normal IMO to IMO3 and then add the insect frass into the IMO3 and then it convert it into IMO4 in order to make the, the pest management IMO and then into a liquid IMO as a spray. Uh, uh, what I found in, in my opinion, having done it a couple of different ways is, is a, a, a way that in my opinion is a better, uh, does a better job and gets a, a better uh, variety of microbes uh, with a better potential for a biocontrol agent. And this is kind of the, the short version of that is to do a, um, a IMO collection, uh, but do uh, 30 to 35% of your uh, rice as insect frass that you mix in with your uh, bird seed, or, or not bird seed, rice. Uh, sorry, my brain is fried. Um, you mix in with your rice, okay? And then you're going to um, cook that the same way you would normally with your rice, uh, and then put it out with your your rice uh, into the field and collect that. So now you have uh, not only the shatan, but you have some of that you know powder and stuff is soaked into the rice. So you have that that chitinase uh, rice as well as the chitinase in the uh, and the shatan in the um, uh, from the insect frass itself. So now we have a couple of different ways that we can. Uh, attract uh, insect feeding microbes, so stuff, various microbes that will feed on their exoskeletons. So now we're collecting them actively on both the rice and on the insect frows. And, and, and you know, f four to, to seven days later, you're going to collect that rice and, and then cut that 50% uh, by weight uh, or, you know, uh, with, with sugar. So if my my IMO uh, insect frass and rice mixture was 100 grams. I'm going to weigh 100 grams of sugar, uh, blend them all together, put them in, and I'm going to put another five to 10 grams uh, across the top in order to seal it up and, see, and create kind of a, a cap layer, uh, uh, just enough to, to make sure that it, it you know won't uh, get too funky on the top. And then that is my IMO two. And then from IMO two, I can make that directly into a liquid IMO for that direct application, or I can convert that into an IMO3 uh, uh, by mixing it with some local soil and some, you know, all, all the different ways you normally do your IMO3 and then do an IMO4 uh, and then do a liquid IMO. So you can stage that to whatever, but I found you can even just go straight to a liquid IMO from IMO2 uh, and immediately spray that and add that to your soil. And it is a great way to get those, you know, heavy chitinase feeding uh, and chitin, not chitinase, but chitin feeding microbes uh, that really just are pretty devastating to most of your local insects. And the, again, I'm not bringing in any local insect, any local pathogen, any local whatever. This is the microbes in my yard and my local property that already existed there in a concentrated form as a biocontrol agent. And, and it, I found it works incredibly well, particularly for some of the larger uh, insects. And welcome back, Roger. You want to continue with your slideshow there, Captain?
Yeah, I'm still sorting things out. I had to reboot. I'm, I'm not sure what happened. Give me a second. Actually, give me a couple of minutes. That's fine. We, we have another question from chat. One second. Let me get my windows all sorted out here. So we another question from chat. It goes, uh, let's talk labs. So one of the things I've seen uh, that works really good for labs, and we've talked about this a couple of different times, is doing what I call ghetto labs. And I call them ghetto labs because you can make it in the ghetto. Um, you don't need to do an air collection uh, for your stuff. You can actually go and make a probiotic. Um, can you make a video making labs? Yes, I actually, someone asked about videos making labs. I actually have like six videos on making labs and different ways to make labs on my YouTube channel uh, over on Potent Phonics, uh, if you're listening to this in audio. Um, so what I've found is taking uh, either milk kefir or kefir, depending on your culture, uh, uh, and, and adding that or yogurt or any fermented milk product, really uh, cheese, any fermented milk product. Um, there's a whole wide range of different cultures that have different fermented milk products. Um, and all of them uh, are, can be plant beneficial. Remember, we're after those lactobacillus bacteria. So by using uh, yogurts and using kefir and using all these other ones, uh, there, there's, there's other ones that are out there, you're, you're getting a wider complex of lactobacillus. And, and why is that important? Because lactobacillus, a lot, a lot of it's, a lot of the different ones make vitamin B complexes as, as a byproduct. So I can actually, especially the kefir, give the plants a wide range of vitamin B along with the, the other, um, you know, benefits of, of labs. So uh, by using some less traditional lactobacillus sources, you can actually get a much better, more plant beneficial um, uh, uh, effects on your stuff. Uh, someone on, on chat is talking about how their grandma taught them to, to pour milk on their compost pile. Absolutely. And that's again, to feed those, those lactobacilli. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a really good product. And again, if you're dealing with root rot, if you're dealing with high temperatures, I know we're dealing with high temperatures in the greenhouse right now with the, with the water or higher than we wish it would be. Um, so we've increased oxygenation and we're dosing labs pretty heavily. Um, uh, in order to, uh, uh, you know, help prevent any root rot or pythium issues, uh, you know, proactively and probiotically. And it's uh, one of the other cool side effects of labs is that it also in an aquaponics system can consume E. coli, salmonella, and other human-born pathogens. So if you're growing leafy greens, lettuces, cannabis, anything else that's going to be heavily tested for pathogens, especially leaf surface pathogens, Labs are a great way to annihilate them and outcompete them in a way with something that's 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 good for your own microbiome, you know, something that, that you can drink. You know, there aren't a whole lot of things that can both kill E. coli and that you can drink, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, especially as something that you can also pour in your aquaponics system. Uh, you know, the list of things that you can do, all three of those things are, is a very short list. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we love to work on. And this is a lot of stuff that I've, I, you know, in the future would love to further flesh out. I have a whole wide range of stuff that will be included in the book, but uh, long-term in my research, this is really the area that I would love to go and explore is, is, is more of these ferment based and, and, and natural farming based stuff with, with uh, mapping out all the different availabilities and, and, and discovering more things like the phycocyanin isolates and some of the other interesting things that we've stumbled along the way with, with natural farming and trying to, you know, unlock more for
from that from that tool chest. Um, I think it's something that really needs to be kind of talked about more. And we've talked about that at length on the show with both Chris and uh, Eric and a whole wide range of other people. So, uh, uh, you know, anyways, uh, I'm not really sure what's going on with, uh, with Roger. We'll give him a few more minutes. Let's see if we have any more questions from chat here. Click back over. One second, guys. Somebody says they cannot find black worms looked in pet shops, but no luck. Um, black worms can be tricky. Sometimes not everybody is as educated on them. Uh, you can order them online. I think Live Aquaria uh, and a couple of the other more common um, uh, aquarium fish websites that do ship live fish often carry them. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, someone else on here uh, mentioned that they, uh, I don't know, where was it? See if I can find the thing here. Uh, there's another good question from chat. Hold on a second. Uh, anyway, someone, uh, someone asked about the nematodes effect on smaller grow outdoor grows. I found the nematodes are great again when used as the proper application, just as a preventative. Um, I really like them. Uh, I use them on all the aquaponic grows that I that uh, the owners will will uh, spring on them for. So, uh, you know, it really makes a big difference in uh, prevention, you know, as part of an overall prevention plan, they are, are one of the most important things that you can put in your garden. Remember, most nematodes that you put in their, your garden are killing over 50 or to 100 species of, of different insects that they can actually kill. In some cases, over 250 species. So, uh, you know, they are a great thing to add to the garden. It's something that can also live there for quite a long time and breed uh, on their own uh, once introduced. It looks like Roger's back. Hopefully, uh, uh, a little, uh, a little fewer problems than last time. We'll see, man. It's our power keeps going out here. We're having some storms, so my apologies. Uh, I don't even remember what we were talking about now. So it's so frustrating when you're trying to help you're people. Showing, uh, showing us some pictures of uh, before and afters. And, uh, we'll cut back to you in a minute. Um, we have an outdoor pond, biofilter, cattails, lilies, goldfish. How do I go about using water without bringing bad things into my indoor crop? If you want to do that, you could directly plumb it into your indoor. If you were worried about bringing in any insects or something like that, you could hit it with the, well, you could in theory hit it with the UV. You're going to screw up some of the nutrients by doing that. Um, but, uh, if you wanted to be squeaky clean on the microbials, you could do that. Or an ozonator, again, you're gonna affect negatively impact your nutrients. Um, uh, someone asked what the best nematodes to order. I like the triple, th hold on a second. I've been using Arbico a lot lately because they've been pretty good about shipping on time. Um, but they're just getting it from the same suppliers as everybody else, but they have a triple thread uh, yeah, triple threat beneficial is the one that I like a lot because, you know, I can do one, one, one thing, put it into our batch of soil, mix it all up with the tractor and it's done, you know. They do have a description on the website, right? So you can, if you are like trying to treat something specific, they, they do target slightly different types of insects 
There's, yep. I think, four different kinds on their website, and they do a really good job of breaking it down. All right, they do such a good job, I usually go there first to see if they already have what I need before I go digging into more scientific websites. So uh, very informative. Usually have the temperature and humidity range for all of their beneficial insects. And for nematodes, they list specifically what each individual strain is supposed to target. So check those, check them out. Yep, yep. What, uh, what else is new with your garden there, Marty? Well, so we're, <clears throat> like last week, I talked about where I got all the materials for the bed. So that's cool. Um, the bed modifications, uh, gonna put in, instead of the plastic netting, I've got um, like a metal, um, you know, like hardware cloth fins that I'm gonna put in so it'll be more permanent. Uh, gonna lower the net down a little bit. Gonna add the drainage from end to end on the media beds. And that'll also give me the, the platform to put, um, uh, to have a consistent height for all my dual root zone pots without having to worry about them falling down into the bed or sinking down into the bed, I should say. Um, so I got all the stuff to do that. I've got uh, Snowman and Sunset Sherbert and Thor's Berry are all getting ready to, uh, well, some, most of them are already in there already. Um, and then I'll just pull them out to do, do the modifications. Um, but yeah, I've got I think all but three plants left that I have to decide on, on what's gonna go in, um, loading that up. So we'll, we'll have to pull all the media out of the beds, enough to, to put in the drainage, uh, fill them all back in, you know, put the pots back in. Um, we just topped everything a couple of days ago going to release beneficial insects. Uh, so for, uh, I switched my light schedule, obviously, to keep them in bed for a little while. Um, so in order to do that, I just interrupt their night cycle with, uh, um, with about, you know, two hours worth of light. I could probably do go down to an hour. But uh, just remember that we plants track the length of the nighttime not the length of the daytime. So you can um, you can interrupt that by, by giving them a small amount of light or not a small amount, but light for about, I don't know, there's some mixed, mixed reviews. I've seen anything from like 45 minutes to an hour being enough to, for a little bit more. But anyway, you just interrupt it so they don't have that long night cycle that triggers flower. And that's how I keep them in veg. And I have found that if I do that, um, they'll they'll start flowering faster when I switch them to the full 12 wall. So there's something about like keeping them right on the brink that uh, allows them to switch faster. But uh, so you got some nematodes up there, Steve. Yeah, here's the nematodes that uh, people are asking about, the triple threats. These are the ones that I like the most. In case you're wondering, just to answer your question fully. Can you go back to the full beneficial nematodes page? Like if you go towards the top, right? Yeah. So here you can get the individual ones. And if you click on any of those, you can kind of see what the differences are. Or you can get the three pack, or it just has a pack of each one. 
but it'll say what they target. This product controls these pests. Yeah, so it's really good dosing charts and stuff on their site and everything, and you can target, you know, the exact thing that you're going after. Super useful website. I don't, I don't know who their web designer is or, or content developer. Also, both are, are pretty good. I really like their website. It's very informative. Uh, and you can see this one works a little bit better for weevils. I, they don't even like sponsor me or give me free stuff or even a discount. So <laughs> that's just because. Yeah, we, we just dump money at these guys. So, but they work. You know, I've used these guys for a long time, and they're some of the best uh, best products out there. So, yeah, even the local bug store that I work with here, when I, you know, they they get supplied through these guys, so it's not like, um, you know, they're they're a big supplier of most of your local shops, which is great. I still buy stuff through local shops um, when I can, but uh, I definitely. Um, like going to their website to see uh, what treats what and what temperature and humidity ranges are and any any type of information. Um, and then sometimes it just makes more sense to order them, larger orders um, that I can save on shipping. Then, uh, you know, I will order them direct from, uh, from the website. But a lot of times, uh, Nathan over at Nature's Control down here in Phoenix in Southern Oregon, uh, does, does a great job of, of really doing what a distributor should, which is, uh, you know, saving people money on, on shipping it and allowing people to buy in smaller quantities and still pay a reasonable price. So shout out to those guys. I buy a lot of stuff through them. They they have, uh, Nature's Control has provided uh, bugs for Steve and I's class before. So uh, shout out to them. And uh, thanks for that. We appreciate it. Oh yeah, when we do the live classes, they are uh, definitely uh, part of the show. One of the parts that I think people, you know, it doesn't matter where you teach it. When you put a whole bunch of bugs into people's hands and tell them to go throw them on the plants, people just, for some reason, they either are completely creeped out or they think it's the funnest, coolest thing they've ever had the experience of doing. And it's one end or the other. There's nothing in the middle. It's kind of funny. It was cool before our last class, it just happened to work out that one of my friends showed up with a bunch of plants that had a bunch of uh, different pests on them that we had root aphids and thrips and spider mites. Um, and, uh, and he was dropping them off because he, he needed them saved. And we did resurrect them. Some of those are actually uh, snowman is that same genetics that got all cleaned up and is now in my girl room. So we'll get to take a look at that. And then also the sunset sherbet also came in that way. And I did a whole uh, video series for my Patreon on, on how to clean those plants, uh, you know, grow them out to get clones of them, treat the clones, create new moms, uh, <clears throat> and then and then be able to you know revive the genetics um, and and kill off the infected mother. So that whole series is up there if you want to check it out at AP Meds. That was. Uh, definitely pretty cool. But um, I do think that there is a lot to be said for just like uh, treating as many different aspects of the plant as you can. Like we talked a lot about nematodes and I think that the um, as far as like what kind you get or like what brand you get, just match them up the best you can. But for the most part, um, especially this time of year, we were talking about summer stuff and there's a lot that can be out right now. This is like 
prime insect season for most of your plant heavy feeders. Like, and really it's everything. It's caterpillars are, are just starting to come out. You know, so you have these overlap from spring and summer. Uh, and then you also have, you'll have an overlap later, but there's less fall stuff that, that pops out that the spring to summer overlap gives you a wide variety of things that you need to treat for. So I'm with Steve in terms of getting the three different kinds and using them, unless you've got like a really heavy infestation of like say root aphids that you want to pick, um, you know, just go, go for the shotgun approach unless you have something that you really need to, to kill it with. Um, but so, root aphids is definitely one that you want to get a targeted one. Nematodes don't work on root aphids. What's that? So I did a pretty extensive treatment before I left for Africa. One of the last consulting gigs I did was a root aphid project. Well, a client that had root aphids, how about that? And um, we tried <coughs> everything in the kitchen sink. And what actually worked was we did a, <coughs> did a rotation of <coughs> Bavaria bassania. Mm-hmm. Botanigar? Um, or PF there's other kinds, but that's what's in Botanigar. Yep. PFR 97. <laughs> and then uh, flooding them with rove beetles. Yep. And aureus. And that seems to be about the only way to get rid of them. So you can also dose um, the Botanigar and the nematodes at the same time. That's really like my, uh, my root aphid. <laughs> like magic theorem, I guess, if you want to. Like, it's the only thing that really allowed me to, like, finish knocking them all the way out completely um, yeah. is the combination of, of the both Botanigard and Nematode treatments at the same time. By the way, if you can, definitely do a dunk and not a drench. So if you can make a mix and submerge the entire plant um, in it, uh, as opposed to um, just trying to drench it all the way through, it's much more effective. Uh, but nematodes and botanigar can be mixed together and dosed at the same time, which I highly recommend doing. Um, <clears throat> and then on top of that, rose beetle, uh, road beetles, uh, H miles, and lacewing. That's really like trying to cover all of those levels that they end up getting into. Because adults, once they hit the, especially winged ones, um, you know, they can, they can. They specifically spread to non-infected plants, and that it's it's just bad. <laughs> it's real bad. I'll tell you what, though, I have really good videos of both lacewing larvae and rove beetles just housing the crap out of just one oh, yeah. after another. Um, but rove beetles seem to be just hands down the ones that just kill the most per day. And and but I believe it. Was, who was I listening to the other day? It was either xenthanol or another um, insect specialist. I don't remember who it was, it was uh, but one of the two of them. And um, they uh, were talking specifically about uh, looking at nematodes and rice root aphids under a microscope. And what they're saying is, is that they were not seeing that the um, attack them that they have these spikes in the legs and, and some other defense mechanisms that make them a lot harder to to attack so um uh, i found or they found that they just simply weren't infecting them and, and they were having a really low infection rate and that it 
know, com compared to other things, it just was not working. Now, um, Bavaria Vasania was working on them, but, uh, and that is something that you can actively use right at the water level. You know, you don't have to worry about if it gets in the system. It's not going to hurt mm -hmm. your fish at all. Uh, it's completely fish safe. So it's, it's a good thing for that because they do love that water. You know, they will sit right at the water level, right at the very bottom of your pot, dual root zone pots, or in your media beds. It'd be a beds. difficult place to treat if, uh, yeah. like, trying to get a drench to get all the way down, you know, especially when you have a dual root zone plant that's really established. That soil layer is, like, compacted with roots. Like, the entire thing is going to be stuffed full. So trying to oh, get yeah. a drench that will treat all the way down to that layer of media um, you know, between the water level um, and the bottom of the soil, that's just like the, the perfect place for them to reproduce and, that, and that's what they do. So if you do have the ability to, obviously if you're tied into a scrog net or something like that, you might not be able to pull your plants out and, and do a total dunk on them as opposed to a drench where you're pouring it over the top. Um, but if you can do it, uh, if you've got clones or our plants that haven't gotten into the system yet um dunking them submerging them completely in water for you know even up to a minute uh, is going to be super effective much more effective than trying to get the um i mean essentially it's inoculated down there so it will treat that area but it's just a lot harder to get that direct contact so that you make sure it gets in the area because um <clears throat> the water is washing in and out of that area all the time also. So it's going to naturally want to pull uh, pull that stuff out. So I just think that it's uh, it's really critical to have the rope beetles uh, to help knock out those areas because they can really dig in there and get through there. I, I was curious if, uh, and I know I always talk about it, I still haven't done it, but I really want to get some black worms and, and see if I can put them at the bottom of each one of my dual root zone pots and uh, see if they really help knock out. Because right now I do get some uh, solids collection in the bottom of my dual root zone pots that the red regulars don't seem to quite get to. Um, uh, but for right now, I usually just sprinkle some, like I'll just scrape out around it and I'll sprinkle some Bokashi brand in there and cover it back up and they'll, it'll use up pretty quick. But I'm curious if the black worms will just, you know, be more passive. Oh yeah, and they yeah. they love to seek out those anaerobic zones, feed on those anaerobic bacteria, and those those problematic areas, and they'll they'll tunnel in there and break them up and bring in some fresh oxygenated water and 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 you know serve the same purpose that your uh, red wigglers do, just on a much smaller level. I haven't had any go anaerobic, but I've you know probably just because I I treat them pretty quickly with the uh, with the Bokashi brand, the Bokashi brand. But that's always my concern is that sludge will eventually become anaerobic. Um, so that, that I think would happen if I didn't do anything about it. Um, but so I, I mean, I do think like you're talking about the platforms might help do that a little more passively. So I'm always looking for ways that which the system can just take care of itself instead of you know, require me to throw something in there. Cool. We had another question from Chad. I have a plant showing signs of tobacco mosaic virus. For the most part, she looked great, except for a few hook leaves. What is your opinion? Should I pull it? Would it be worth flowering? Well, 
depends on if it's actually a mosaic virus um, without seeing it. First off, um, it's probably not tobacco mosaic virus. Um, tobacco mosaic virus, while it has been documented in cannabis, is not common. There are 14 other mosaic viruses, Arabis mosaic virus, cucumber mosaic virus, alfalfa mosaic virus, tomato mosaic virus, tomato, uh, uh, tobacco streak virus, um, a whole bunch of others, hemp mosaic virus, hemp streak virus that are heavily documented in cannabis genetically um, that it could be. Um, you can go to a website called agdia, A-G-D-I-A.com and they can get you can get yourself some test strips if you want to confirm it. Uh, if you're getting a pretty good marbling pattern on one side of the leaf though, and it's hooking pretty hard to one side, and it's a streaking marbling pattern and not solid, it's a good chance it's a mosaic virus. Now, Chris Trump is claiming that you can treat it, and at least he's treated to, um, tomato mosaic virus uh, repeatedly with um, IMO and lactobacillus treatments. Uh, I know that also um, Alan and uh, Kevin Jodry yeah. both have had success with lactobacillus treatments, repeated lactobacillus treatments and tissue culture or, or taking clones from the newest tissue and, and repeating the process until you get the viral load down to a point where uh, it could be, you know, if it's something rare or something you worked hard to get your hands on, uh, that can be options for you or courses of action if you are desperate to save that genetic uh, particular yeah, genetics. so it's uh, more like if I remember right, isn't it more that you're just you look, you look for reducing the viral reduce, load. You're not gonna yeah, rid of it. you're you're not going to get rid of it all together, but you can look for areas where in the plant where it's not expressing. You clone that part of it. You grow it in a highly microbial influenced growing medium. So like uh, Allen's uh, Grokashi boxes, where they earth boxes. Um, I think they were was what they were using. So, uh, you know, heavy doses of EM1 in the reservoir, um, in the soil. Um, so to and help you keep do, those you populations When you're doing them for viral load, the, they take the tissue culture from two places, either the very newest growth <clears throat> or they'll take it from the, the root nodules. So, you know, when you root something and you'll get like those roots that kind of grow out in the air, kind of above the soil. Mm -hmm. um, they'll take them off of those uh, and, and use those to spawn new plants as well um, uh, because that seems to have the lower viral loads uh, for whatever reason but that's just my understanding someone else might chime in and, and yeah and then you just you just repeat that process over and over again so you uh, you grow that plant out you you harvest the what appears to be the cleanest section of it into a clone um, and, and then you grow that one out in a, another heavily induced uh, environment. And then you can do that as many times as you want to uh, in order to reduce the viral load on the entire plant and then flower that out. But it can be a lot of work to do. Uh, it's really the same process that we do for beneficial insects, but you, you repeat it. And ideally, if you do it right with, uh, um, with insects, uh, you, you shouldn't have to do it more than once because you can completely clean it if you do it right. That's not really the case with a viral infection. Yeah, absolutely. With, with virals, it gets a lot trickier. Sorry about that. I was trying to adjust my volume there. I didn't realize it was still going Are on. You, sorry, someone else. No, you're good. Um, so someone else asked about mosquitoes. 
and nematodes. Uh, I don't know if mosquitoes work on nematodes. We use uh, BTI, uh, the mosquito dunks. We just spread that around. You, we also have uh, mosquito fish in the system. So guppies basically, functionally, um, that live in the system that eat any small insect that comes into the surface. Again, another great way, if you want something to go after those rice root aphids right at the water level, throw a bunch of guppies in there. They love to feed on them. And you'll have fat, happy guppies you can resell back to your pet shop, you know? Yeah, for sure. But, I uh, think yeah. the mosquito dunks part, for sure. I think it, they were great. And, uh, yeah. you know, throw I'll those go. next to your water input. Or um, I, I like to sprinkle some in the bottom of my dual root zone pot and where, down where the media uh, goes. So below the, the separator. Um, so I put, uh, I put the Bokashi brand down there. Uh, I put a little bit of BioLive and I put um, the mosquito dunk chunks. What are they called? They're not chunks, they're, uh, they're like little crumbles. Mosquito bits, that's what they are, mosquito bits. You can just spread those out down there on the bottom. I have a, I have a video coming out on that. Hold on, I think it's tomorrow. Hold on. Yes, tomorrow. Wait, did come out today? Hold on, let me look. What's tomorrow? No. Okay, I already did it. It was on July 1st. We did one on the mosquito bits. <clears throat> yeah, so super easy. You can just spread it right out. You can put it in your media bed if you want to. I, um, you can get the little donuts also, the mosquito dunks, and uh, th those also work as well. Um, so as far as mosquitoes go, I don't, I don't think I've ever really tried messing with too much else because they're, those are pretty effective. They do, their larva does hatch in water though. So just about anything aquatic, like Steve was saying, guppies will, will keep them wiped out. So even if some get in there, you take out their larva. Make sure that you don't have any spaces in your system, like in your media beds, where you don't have enough media and they can get access to the water through down through the top. So make sure you, you have enough, a thick enough layer above your water to make sure they can get in there and lay eggs. But besides that, you should be good to go. White flies, I guess, kind of have that same issue as well. You gotta make sure there's no super wet areas where they can get in and reproduce. Yeah, and uh, for anyone else who's out there listening, I actually did a new playlist the other day. Um, I didn't realize until uh, the other day, one of my coworkers pointed out, he goes, do you realize how many different videos and pest control you have? So we actually have a, a whole new uh, playlist called Aquaponic Pest Control um, on my YouTube. So if you're looking specifically for a really good, it's 25 different videos. A whole we cover everything from fungus to to aphids to spider mites to you name it. You know, and um, anytime I, I get a chance to work with a different biocontrol agent, something I'm using in my application is something I'm, you know, or using as a preventative, uh, uh, you know, we try to do a, a short video on it. And it might not be the most in-depth. Uh, I'd love to go back later on. And uh, once I get the book done, 
and start doing some more in-depth videos on, on some of this stuff, but uh, I'm going to focus mainly on that for the time being and, um, and getting the class done, uh, the new version of the class, which is kind of turning into a bit of a monstrosity uh, in a good way. Uh, Content-wise, it's, it's getting really awesome. So um, we're uh, hammering away at that on our, on our Tuesdays. Uh, Marty and I, and um, uh, once that's done, we'll, we'll get back to, to two shows a week. But uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fun things are going on right now. Um, I have some really cool projects in the works that are uh, kind of coming to fruition after many many, many months of, of um, hard work and uh, some other projects that, uh, anyways, lots of cool things coming together that I'm super stoked on. And um, I think nice. you guys are gonna be really excited about as well and some stuff that's gonna be kind of a game changer for the Oklahoma market uh, specifically that I think that you guys are not ready for uh, in a good way. So gonna be pretty Yeah, I got a question from chat. He said, would, um which types of genetics perform best in aquaponic systems and bird experience? Also, have you noticed any effect on terpene profile development? Uh, I'll let you swing at this one first, Marty, and then I'll, I'll go second. Well, this is kind of a nuanced question. I've grown a lot of stuff, both in various methods. Um, <clears throat> so living soil beds, uh, sub-irrigated planters, uh, just straight pots, uh, indoors, um, outdoors, straight in the ground, raised beds, geoplanters. So I've grown a variety of different methods and I've grown the same cut numerous times. And sometimes I've even grown them at the same time with different methods. And I can honestly say there hasn't been a single strain out of, I think probably I was able to name 15, I think, last time I was on chat. You guys challenged me if I could name them all. I think I got up to 15 um, last time. But uh, not one comparison have I felt like uh, anything was better than the aquaponic results. So in terms of terpene profile, genetic expression, flavor, taste, high, whatever measurable you want, uh, to compare against, I've, I've always preferred the same cut grown in aquaponics versus not. Whether I would say probably the, the second best would have been raised soil, uh, living soil beds outdoors would have been the, the only thing that would have consistently taken second place. Everything else is a little bit of a mixed bag. But aquaponics has always been, I guess, in my opinion, the best flavor, uh, terpene expression, high, all that stuff. Um, I guess yield would be the only one that could be arguable uh, and that it wasn't necessarily better, but at least on par with. Um, it's the only one that I feel like had a clear advantage. And I don't have any lab tests to necessarily uh, scientifically prove that it's necessarily better for cannabinoid production or any of the other stuff that he talks about. Um, so uh, as far as what ones specifically do well, I had a lot of good luck with Girl Scout cookies. Um, a couple of different strains. If you look at my first outdoor run, uh, 
Can I can I preface that with Girl Style Cookies is like while it grows really well, is one of the shittiest fucking strains to to trim up. It, it's a bunch of smaller nugs and it's a pain in the ass to trim, but it grows really well. It does. And like quality wise, and it looks pretty, and I got some really good genetic expression out of it. And the reason I put this one at the top, I have gotten this question quite a few times, but the reason I rate this one as being better in aquaponics is the drastic difference between cookies and anything else. Sips, uh, raised beds, geo planners, uh, any of that stuff. the aquaponics was head and shoulders above uh, anything else. Um, so in both uh, smell, taste, flavor, all those things. So I would say that uh, that would probably, just because it has a, a, a drastic difference. Now, in terms of my favorite ones to grow, um, I would say blue cheese is probably like my favorite. Jack, super good, really piney. Um, grew a mango kush that did really well. Um, what else? Gorilla Glue, GG4, performed really well. Again, that's another kind of like really chunky, not so much like giant cola type buds. Shishka Berry was really good. I go more off of flavor and taste than I do like yield or or anything else. Um, so just preface all that. Um, I would say those are probably like the strains that really stood out, but I, I've grown a lot of them. I grew a train wreck. Um, and, I, and I feel like all the time you get something a little bit different than what you get with other media when you do aquaponics. Um, yeah, I just think that it's a uh, Always slightly different flavor, um, even even structure is usually different. What about you, Steve? All right, so to go back to his original question. Um, Talking about found, what it produces well, yeah. Yeah, so I found that Indica's team seemed to do slightly better than Sativa's in general, uh, in my experience. I found that four ish percent of strains just seem to just not yield quite so hot in aquaponics compared to the control. I've also found that um, about 4% of everything is just going to excel at something. So, you know, I might have 4% of any strain is going to do really well in soil versus aquaponics or aquaponics versus soil or hydro versus aquaponics or whatever, right? So you're always going to have that, that, that small percentage that just hates your growth method no matter what. But usually you can pheno hunt, you know, one that that'll behave and play nice if you if you search search for her. Who it was one of the breeders we had on recently was talking about how they uh, they bred specifically for survival traits. Yeah, who was that? Uh, and I thought that was fast. They were like doing crazy shit to their males. <laughs> they were all about like preserving it, harassing the shit. Yeah. Yeah, they were, and it was really cool because I hadn't had you know we asked that same question to a number of different breeders <laughs> and while we we had a lot of different answers to it I thought that was uh that was unique and then no one else bred specifically for that and then they he had like 
routines that he put them through. Like, um, so that was that was really cool. I'm gonna have to look up who that was now. <laughs> but anyway, I thought that was cool that they. So you never know. Also, I always put a caveat in for genetics because um, you know we always talk strains, but a lot of times these could be different phenos um, that that probably have no business being compared to each other. Or another thing I run into a lot, especially in consulting, is people that want to compare numbers from a seed grow versus a clone grow without really understanding what they're looking at. And you, <clears throat> obviously through, whether if you're growing from seed or from clone, you have a lot of different concerns uh, for a commercial system and different expectations for output at different times. So. If you don't understand those things, then it can be challenging uh, to be a successful grower. So all you noobs out there, Google that up. Oh, you were talking about strains. Sorry, I interrupted you, Steve. What else did you have that? Oh, so I found, so particularly, I have a string called Blue Hash that I've been working for a long time that I found grows really, really, really well. Um, shout out yeah, to Jamie and Green Jeans. Um, Mr. Green Jeans has also made a ton of crosses with it. It's been one of his that's best. When you crossed with G13? No, that's a different one. Um, the G13 hash plant from Dragonfly Earth Medicine has also been one of the best strains that I've had the pleasure of getting my hands on. Um, probably my second best strain after the blue hash. Um, uh, so those would be my first two. As far as stuff that you guys could acquire, um, you can get lots of stuff through Mr. Green Jeans, MrGreenJeansGarden.com. I love growing marijuana. Yeah, I love growing marijuana. Check them out. Um, uh, I've also had really good luck with Bruce Banner. I'm trying to think of my heaviest yielders. Bruce Banner, uh, Prebubba 98, uh, Chemdog, um, Golden Goat, Arise. Um, I'm trying to think of ones that were particularly heavy. The heaviest plant I've grown so far in aquaponics has still been a Bruce Banner. We pulled down about six and a half pounds off of that plant. Just straight yield wise, I'd have to say Starfighter OG was my was my heaviest yielder. Yeah. <laughs> of the last run that we did, the Chem Dog I think was the heaviest stacking, followed by the Pre Bubba. Um, I, uh, we had a GMO Girl Scout cookies cross that, uh, we have kind of two distinct phenos of, and the one pheno has the stinkiest terpenes that you've ever smelled. It just stays in your nose for like an hour after you smell the damn thing. Um, and that's been one that I've been really digging. I'm super, we have a lot of cool new stuff that we got in the pipeline here that I'm really excited about. Um, to answer the second part of your question, have you noticed any effect on terpene profile development? Marty, I'll let you start with that and then I'll break that down into break down on the science on that. Yeah, I, you know, I think that again, the aquaponics always has that little bit different terpene profile and it's always a little bit more pungent. So it's usually just slightly different and more pungent, stronger smell, flavor, that kind of like, uh, you know, smell it through the bag kind of stink versus just, oh, that smells like good weed. 
Um, that's kind of like the best way that I can explain it to you. Like um, a level of funk <laughs> that permeates the bag. Uh, I, I feel like you, you, it's a lot easier and more forgiving to get that out of it. And you get colors. Like if you, if you have a strain that um, likes to express color, in this case, I mean, I know everyone's hating on cookies and I'm not a big fan of it either, but I grew up a uh, platinum cookies. Black. Which, uh, uh, you can get cookies like black, black. So yeah, that, that bright purple one that I was always taking pictures of, that was a uh, platinum Girl Scout cookies crossed with blue power. And it just comes out really like vibrant purple shade leaves. Um, and in the outdoor aquaponics system, it just, I mean, every bit of genetic expression came out. And it was, it was, Oh, what happened? You got muted. I wasn't touching anything. I blame the ghost. No, I think I scrolled my mouse and suddenly all the audio stopped. I think I did it by accident. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so while I'm not a huge fan of, of that itself, I do want, I just wanted to point out that Girl Scout cookie did significantly better in aquaponics than any other cookies that I had tasted. And that's why I say that it does better in aquaponics. The rest of them, you know, it's kind of in, uh, maybe not necessarily an even bar, there's just not much of a difference, but terpenes, the taste, the flavor, like we're talking about right now, is always different and I always prefer it. Um, the same cuts grown multiple ways. I just feel like it has that, that little bit extra, uh, <clears throat> I guess, intensity of it. Um, always comes through, at least in my experience. And I, I feel like the only way that I could make sure that that was, was to grow in different ways um, and say that for sure, because I, you always have a certain amount of pride that you feel when you're smoking anything that you grew yourself or even me personally, even eating stuff I grow myself, like tomatoes or you know whatever it is. Um, so even just comparing it against other stuff that I grew, um, I still prefer aquaponics. And I felt like that was the only way that I could sort of separate my bias. Because even my friends that I, you know, that come over and smoke it, and they're like, oh yeah, it's so great, real good. Not, you know, let me get some. And, you know, like all that stuff. It's always good, but you always wonder like, oh, is this, you know, are they just saying that because they're here smoking my weed? Uh, <laughs> and they want to smoke some more of it. You know, like you never know how biased your friends are. So that was the only way for me where I was like, okay, well, how, you know, if I grew it, then there's no more bias, right? Like if I, you know, and I, I really like growing different ways too, like subirrigated planters, I really like them and the methodology. And I learned a lot about them. I don't use a lot of them anymore. I grow some tomatoes and peppers that way. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, I don't grow any cannabis that way anymore, but I might outside, I consider that now that I can do outdoor grows again. Yeah. So I've had, um... So, okay, so there's a couple of things going on with this. So with terpenes, <clears throat> first off, terpenes are, are across the board in every single side-by-side -side I've ever done a single terpene profile for, and there is no exceptions to this. The terpene profiles were higher 100% of the time in every single, and this is going back to 2013. Um, not a single test have I ever done has the aquaponics ever been lower than whatever the hell I compared it against. 
That includes aeroponics, soil, hydroponics, living soil, um, eight year old living soil beds, still crushed it. Like not even a contest, like more than 10% total terpene difference. Not, not, not even in the same league. Um, and there's also a really detailed white paper study coming out. Um, I'll look up the guy's name. I'm trying to drag him on the podcast. He's working with Green Relief Incorporated up in Canada. They're doing a white paper study on on uh, on dual root zone versus um, a rock wool versus a DWC. Or is it rock wool? I forget what the third one of it. It's like a sterile living soil and um, DWC, and the terpenes were just so much better. Um, and, and across the board again. So, and let's talk about why. So, why are they better? Well, let's, let's break this down. Why does the plant make terpenes? The plant makes terpenes to defend itself against environmental um, uh, stimuli. So it could be pests, it could be heat, it could be cold, it could be UV, it could be a, a whole wide range of different things that stimulate the plant. So we need to stimulate the plant in as many ways as possible. So what it, it, uh, one of the biggest ways to do it is increasing biodiversity of microbes to the root system in ways that are non-pathogenic. Well, NASA did a study and found that aquaponic systems have up to hundred on average 168% more biodiversity than the nearest living soil or any soil for that matter, uh, test that they had done. Uh, <clears throat> So the aquatic microbiome, because it's had a hell of a lot longer to evolve and has a lot more different um, temperature ranges and all different types of things and can exist deep within the earth and above, you know, physically has a lot more volumetric space to exist, uh, has quite a bit more biodiversity and they can mineralize things in a wider range. It can also stimulate the plants in a wide range of, of ways. Now we can combine that with the terrestrial microbes that the plants are already used to, to further stimulate them even further. So this is what we talk about with the dual root zone planting. So we're getting all the terrestrial microbiome in the root zone. We're also getting the aquatic microbiome in the root zone. So we're, we're doubling up on the number, over doubling up the number of micro, microbes within that plant's root biome. Uh, dramatically stimulating the roots, the, the, the immune system of that plant in a way that's non-plant pathogenic to the plant. And this is the reason why we get such big increases in terpenes, because we can directly increase that biodiversity and we can inoculate that with I, IMO inoculants and, and, you know, labs and, and, you know, we could buy recharge or mammoth P or whatever other inoculants that you want to put in there. Uh, and, and further stimulate the plant. And I'm just throwing those out as examples, but you, you can put anything that you want, you know, whatever it is that you want to add, you know, everyone has their own preferences on micro microbes and nutrients, throw, throw your, your private cocktail at it, you know, throw your secrets, your secret recipe of stuff on that and, and it'll work, you know, and, and as long as you avoid yucca, we've talked about that plenty uh, and things like that. So. Right. Really you are just tuning in. Don't use yucca. Yeah. Yes. Highly toxic to fish. You'll kill them all. Yeah. Very good. Yes, yes, yes. Unless you want to harvest your fish. If you're looking to harvest an entire system full of fish at one time, then throw some yuck yep. in. We had uh, someone else ask about um, 
uh, where was it? The Herming and plants. Um, oh yeah, so talk, uh, all uh, breeding going on, on. Yeah, beating down ahead. trains, lots of people getting herm results. You can see this being a good thing. Okay, so let's talk about herms for a minute. Um, and also, uh, we had a really good conversation about herms with that same breeder when Mr. Green Jeans was on too. Um, and they, they Kevin McKernan, Kevin McKernan covered some pretty cool stuff with this too. Right. And, uh, so, um, essentially it, it's a survival trigger based on a stress response, right? So there are some very common ones that you've probably already heard about in terms of herming, right? Uh, you know, light leaks is a big one. I do feel like <coughs> it's overdone and that people blame it a lot of times when it's very easily other environmental factors. They'll be like, oh, look at that pinhole in the corner over there or that red LED light that's barely glowing in the corner and not even directly facing anything. And they're like, that's why it hermed out. Well, you know, if every plant in your grow pops bananas at about the same time, <laughs> it's not because of that one little red LED light that's probably genetic, okay? Uh, most of the time, if you're dealing with a light leak scenario, it's going to be centered around where the light comes in. So unless that little LED is within like two inches of a light in only that one little spot right there, it has just a couple of bananas, it's probably not that tiny little LED light. So I get frustrated with, uh, with people who uh, want to label that very quickly. A lot of people don't know this. Um, and to, if you want to prove this point, especially if you have a boss that's not listening to you, take a plant, put a cardboard divider right down the middle of it and leave one side at 12-12 and the other side at like, 18.6. The side that's 18.6 will stay in veg and the side that's 12.12 will go to flower. You can literally flower half a plant. Yeah, so while there are genetics that are probably so unstable, which means they already carry the hermaphroditic gene as a stress response. So that is a plant that evolved somewhere where it was necessary for that plant to go fuck itself in order to survive well, until the next year. So well, that yeah, it already has to carry the gene and then it has to have that stress response introduced to it in order to bring it out. So whether that's a heat response or a light response or a nutrient response or an overwatering response, um, there are a number of different things. And Mr. Green Jeans did a great job of covering even more uh, if you go look at the last episode he was on, he talked about a number of different ways you can do it. If you uh, let a plant just flower too long, it will herm out. A lot of genetic lines carry that trait. So um, it all depends on what you're growing and what its triggers are, but they're all stress responses. And I feel like way too much is blamed on, on light leaks. I mean, you, well, yeah. you can very easily just carry stuff on if you don't label it properly and lame genetics like that's his original point also just based on his comment i think is that when you have people that don't really know what they're doing when it comes to breeding putting out unstable genetics which means that they're 
are genetics that will vary greatly from seed to seed. They don't have a, uh, <clears throat> what do they call that? Uh, like a stability of phenotypes. There's a name for it, I can't remember. But uh, essentially lack of stability. And a lot of times one of the things that pops up consistently, if you don't have a stabilized uh, line is hermaphrodites in response to stress. Some are gonna be more tolerant than others. It doesn't necessarily mean Remember the, ahead, the plant producing female pollen because it's trying to prevent local extinction. So that when the plants, you know, been flowering too long in an area or, or maybe there's a heat wave or there's a, uh, a flood or some kind of other thing in nature, it's going to quickly try and prevent local extinction. So it's going to self-pollinate. And then it's going to, you know, produce its own pollen to produce more females. So that next year is a better chance of being pollinated. It makes, if you think about it from a, of a hey, don't die as a species, it makes a lot of sense why that, why you would want that. We don't want that because it causes all kinds of problems with seed production and everything else for us. Um, but that's why the plant does it. And that's why it has the genes for it. Now, one of the things that I wanted to chime in on this one and found it was very interesting is something that I learned the last time we had Kevin McKernan on, which wasn't that many episodes ago, uh, a couple, maybe two or three episodes ago. He was talking about how in the uh, hermaphroditic trait on, on the, the sex testing, the herms always came up male, remember? They were like a 98% false positive male uh, on the on the herms, which I thought you know was very interesting on the on the on what they were testing for and how that worked. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating too. I always wanted to look look up how that test worked because that would you know that would suggest that it was essentially a female or it was a male all along, not that it was switching the male, right? So that it just seemed counterintuitive to our understanding of how it works because we always think of it as a because probably because we identify it as a female plant with female traits and then later on it shows itself as being male so i guess i understand why the labeling is the way that it is but i i don't understand the science behind uh, behind the test itself like what is it testing for like to, to see genetically what makes a male. You know, it'd be interesting to see if they tested it before it hermed and after it hermed. Like, did they, did they know that they had a male plant that was posing as female because they tested it early on? Or did they wait for it to herm and then tested it and it showed male? Does that make sense? I yeah, I was just going to say, if, if you have a qPCR from Kevin and it, and you're you're seeing female buds and you test it and it shows a male, it's probably a good chance that's going to hurt. Uh, just based on, I was kind of more or less what I was getting at is that it, you, you could almost cross confirm that with, uh, hey, it's got female buds, it's testing a male, that's a herm. You know what I mean? Right. But I do understand. Um, so... And I gotta, I gotta look up who that was, that breeder that was talking about those different things, because he did a great job. Who was that? Yeah. Of explaining, um, kind of what? Sorry, who was it here? Uh, Andrew is getting at, um, in in terms of genetics, and that if what you're starting out with 
is unstable and you keep rolling those unstable genetics forward, sometimes out of just um, being naive or lack of availability or, you know, in some cases, greed, I guess. Um, uh, no, I, I think also, too, I think you're having people that are growing tropical strains in temperate climates and vice versa, or people growing stuff that's radically outside of the humidity environment that was bred or radically outside of whatever environmental factor. And that's having these very hardcore stress responses on the plants. And I think that that's also a factor, especially a lot of people are chasing land races. They're looking for those weird terps right now. They're looking for the next big thing. They're trying to cross a bunch of weird shit. And I think you are getting a lot of, of, of less manicured genetics that have more tendency to hermaphrodite uh, that are being better. You know, you're seeing a lot of Thai stuff getting put back into the gene pool uh, that mm -hmm. is really hermy, really fucking yeah, hermy. I, I mean, I guess I'm for the diversity as long as people can understand um, that, that there are more things besides just light leaks that cause herming. Like for instance, there are some strains that are going to be more and less sensitive to photo period changes. So there are plants that will probably herm out if you just go straight from 24 hour to 12, 12. But if you, if you slowly change the light schedule, like the plant evolved to have, so it, it's, it's planned to change minutes a day, not, not 12 hours in a 24 hour period overnight. So, and, and it doesn't so the, mean that it'll perturb harm, but some strains are going to be more sensitive to other ones, depending on how they, you know, especially ones that are have wider daytimes that change slower. So, yeah. And we have talked about this. The inverse is true too. You know, if you have a CBD, uh, we've talked about this multiple times with CBD heavy traded genetics, do not like to be under 24 hours. If you put a, a lot of the CBD genetics because it's so um, a pigeonholed with the CBD, um, if you put a lot of those CBD genetics under 24 hours of light, they will throw male flower or they'll throw flowers, they'll throw they'll throw bananas. Um, but if you drop them down to an 18.6 or a 16, uh, whatever 16.8, yeah. or just straight flowers, they immediately stop doing that. I've seen or just yeah, or just 12, just 12, 12 on 24 hour light. Yeah. No, no harm, no nothing. You know, like they'll just flower, almost like an auto flower, but it's not. You know, from from the same seed stock, so it's not like. Yep. You know, just a random auto flower plant. Yep, yep. So yeah, I do think that um, diluting the gene pool with unsuccessful genetic traits is part of why we see more people herming more stuff out. But I think some of it's just due to the diversity that's out there. Um, but it, it's hard to say. There's so many backyard crosses um, and bag seeds that just pick up momentum like, you know, your Girl Scout cookies. I think Kim Dog was a bag seed. Um, there's, you know, there's quite a few of people's favorite stuff that nobody has any idea where it came from. Um, you know, thanks prohibition, YouTube. Um, you know, all that stuff could be much more documented if it wasn't, I don't know, fucking illegal. Anyway, 
um, I do think that that's something that, that plays into to all this is that there, there is a lot that we consider breeding stock that we don't know for sure is really like legit breeding stock. We don't know what it is to start with. And then it gets propagated everywhere, just like Girl Scout cookies, right? Like every cross for like a solid three years seemed like had was whatever and whatever cross with Girl Scout cookie. Um, you know, and that I, I feel like Wait, that, that was backwards. What's that? I didn't know that. I didn't know people stopped doing that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm trying to be optimistic. I do see other stuff now, but I think a, a lot of people are still crossing with it. But I, I am happy to see some people move on. Seems like I'm finally getting tired. I'm of sick it. and tired of growing like, the highest THC. I'm sick and tired of growing the highest THC and whatever stupid fucking hype strain. People need to stop with the name recognition and the cannabis and start learning about terpene and cannabinoid profile because I'm so sick and tired of these stupid strains. Well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of that blue dream effect too, you know, like where, um, I mean, the, the appeal of blue dream though was more the yield. I think it was such a grower's plant, grew really easy, yielded well, grew fast, fed quick, easy to clone. Um, you know, so there was definitely that grower aspect of it where a Girl Scout cookie doesn't yield nearly as well in my opinion, even in aquaponics where it does significantly better than everything else. Um, so I, I, there's just aspects of it that I feel like caught on, whether it's just because it had a catchy name or it has a unique smell, like I'll give it that. Like it's got a unique smell and flavor. It gets really frosty. It's nice to look at what while you're guy, growing it. What the guy said the other day was not like if it's not a pastry or a fruit. Sorry, go ahead. What did the guy say the other day? If it's not a pastry or a fruit, we're not growing it. <laughs> yeah. I guess that makes sense. A pastry or a fruit. Yeah, I guess that pretty much lines up. Pretty much covers all the popular crap right now. Yeah. Strawberry, banana. Sunset sherbet and ice cream. Everything but OG, basically. Yeah. Or pink. Anyways, uh, we've been going for quite a bit. It's your kiddo's birthday. I think we'll wrap it up. But watch that. Everybody had to find you, and, uh, and we'll wrap it up. Oh, yeah. So you can find me uh, at AP Meds on YouTube, Patreon, Instagram. Um, you can find me in the Aquaponic Cannabis Growers group. Um, we're always in there, looking at pictures, posting new stuff. We'll have new videos up soon with the reloaded uh, system. We'll veg that for probably less time. I think last time I vegged for about 45 to 50 days and this time we'll veg a little less. Uh, but it'd be exciting just to load it up and get another run going. You know, I've already got some good sized plants that came out of nursery to go in. So definitely check all that stuff out. Uh, be on the lookout for more information coming out on the class um, as we start to finish that up. So we're, we're looking for uh, an on-demand video service that will sort of allow us to not get pirated like crazy. Uh, and we've got a few other things to work out for the video class, but um, uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, if you have any questions, definitely hit up the Facebook group. Or if you're not on Facebook, like I said, Instagram. 
at AP Meds. And uh, yeah, pictures all the time. Have any questions, let me know. Awesome, sounds good. And uh, you can find Roger at True Aquaponics, trueaquaponics.com. He also has a Facebook group, True Aquaponics. You can find Rob, Marty and I over at uh, Aquaponic Cannabis Growers Group on Facebook. Uh, it can be tricky to find. They are bastards lately. You, I can't even find it by searching my own group as the head admin on the mobile app, which is fucking retarded. So um, you have to go to facebook.com backslash groups backslash AP Canna. To actually I find the group. You. I can just search it. If I type in aquaponic cannabis growers group. I can on my computer, but it does not work on my phone. Oh, on your phone. Yeah, the mobile app is disabled cannabis as a search term for some reason suddenly I've noticed. So be Sorry. aware of that. Um anyways, uh and Marty and I or Roger and I also uh, do the consulting service for the nutrients if you have a commercial aquaponics farm uh, via cannabis or vegetables uh, we can get you straightened out and make sure your your uh, your stuff really runs there uh, huh that's weird doesn't show up on mine um, yeah, facebook, really hates weird. facebook hates me damn you mark damn you damn you to hell anyways um <laughs> uh anyways so, uh, uh, and then you can find me at Potent Ponics, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, all the different places. And uh, uh, yeah, you can also check it out. If you're looking for a really cool aquaponic flower or concentrate, check out Organic Innovations. Uh, and uh, you can also has up for clones if you're needing those too. And if you're a licensed Oklahoma producer. Uh, Alrighty, uh, thanks a lot. And we will catch you guys again soon. Take care. See ya.